Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this new episode of FEPS Talks. I'm David Rinaldi, Director of Studies and Policies at FEPS, and I'm very happy to welcome here today Amandine Crespi, Associate Professor at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, where she is uh, associated to the Institute uh, of European Studies and to Chevy Paul, the Centre d'Etudes uh, pour la Vie Politique. But she's also a visiting professor at the College of Europe and a well-known, reputed expert on the social acquis, on the social Europe, what the European Union is doing and uh, what should the European Union do in the sphere of uh, social policies. Amandine, thanks a lot for being here with us today. Hello, thank you. I had the pleasure to look at your uh, last book, The European Social Question, tackling key controversies, in which basically you review all different aspects uh, and the might of the European action in social policies. So the question is very general, very broad, but I think it's also the relevant one. So all in all, is the European Union relevant in the domain of social policy? And in case, in which way? Well, I would be tempted to answer no and yes. The European Union is not relevant if you assess its action with the yardstick that you would use to assess what uh, national states are doing, for instance with their welfare states, with their social system. So if you judge by the level of constraint in terms of laws and regulations, or if you assess in terms of resources, the amount of redistribution between individuals or even between territories, then you would be tempted to say, well, comparing to what national states are doing, the action of the European Union in the social realm is still very limited, still has very little impact if you take the perspective of uh, citizens while they're working, the healthcare system, the pension system, and so on, are, of course, still primarily run by and through national rules and national resources. So in that regard, the answer is no. The social policy, also from a more uh, legal point of view, is still a relatively weak domain of action for the European Union if you look at the prerogatives that the EU has uh, in social policy compared to uh, competition policy or economic policy or many other fields. But I would say that in spite of what I've just said, the action of the EU is very important in many different ways because it takes indirect routes First of all, you can't separate policymaking in the realm of social policy from economic policy. And that's why in the book and elsewhere, I very often talk about socioeconomic governance because the social and the economic cannot be separated. It does not make any sense. And in that regard, the EU is extremely important because it sets the framework conditions in which national states uh, also will be able to uh, make social policy. A short example, we have recently come out slowly from a decade of austeritarianism, of muddling through with recession, with the weakening of welfare states and so on. And of course, those framework conditions, how the monetary union works, 
how the economy works, and I would say more broadly, the type of ideas and policy solutions that the EU is promoting in indirect ways are tremendously important in that they indirectly shape uh, not only what the EU is doing, but also what national governments are doing. And then in complement, I would add that some of the EU tools, although they can uh, seem to be relatively limited, still have a very important impact. And there's two different types of tools, essentially, that the European Union uses. And that's on the one hand, regulations. Uh, We have a body of over 100 directives that set very often set minimum standards in various domains for the world of labor, for certain in terms of anti-discrimination and so on. And so, of course, here the impact is very differentiated across member states. So when you set a minimum standard, this standard will bring an improvement, will bring about change in some countries and not in others. So, of course, for the countries who already have very high standards, uh, having, for instance, to quote a recent directive from 2019, those countries who already have a fairly long maternity leave or paternity leave will not gain much from a new European standards, but other countries will do very much. So here we see a differentiated impact. And finally, another very important policy tool is, of course, the funds. We've had since the 1960s a a European social fund, which especially targets some categories of people, unemployed, women, groups that are discriminated against, and especially in those countries where the resources are scarce, the funds can add Uh, to the resources of local actors, local organizations and institutions to effectively carry out policies in this domain. Thank you, Amandine. Uh, I I sum up probably in a too concise uh, manner, but the relevance of the European Union in in the social domain, which is technically shared with with member states, it's a shared Mm -hmm. competence, but largely in the hands of member states. As you said, uh, setting standards for upward convergence is one of the objectives and uh, doing of the European Union on top of the financing that is uh, you know, provided by the European Union with some guidance, but according to some priorities and schemes uh, that are designed at national or subnational level. But in these, there is still, do you still see a fight or a demand of a stronger role of Europe in the domain of uh, socioeconomic well-being and uh, social policy, uh, welfare policies. I wrote long ago, it was a, a new elan for, for, social, for social Europe. So there is the feeling that there is always the request from the public, the demand. With FEPS, we have done the Millennial Dialogue on Europe, where it's actually the youth stressing that they want uh, Europe involved on on health, on child policies. Eurobarometer is also pushing for you know plenty of uh, of demands. Uh, I remember studies stressing that there is uh, also favor from the from the public on the European uh, unemployment benefit scheme. Then why? there is no response from the side of politics? Or do you see a response that is perhaps a little less visible than the citizen would like? Well, that's the the core question of the book, in a way, 
It's whether the EU and whether there's support for the EU to do more in the realm of social policy. And it's a very complex, multifaceted question. But of course, when you ask people, they would always want more, let's say, public spending and more action for um, supporting social policies in general, I think, both at the national level. And contrary to what some politicians say, that is also true for the European Union. Uh, we've got Eurobarometer data, your own work uh, at FEPS. There's also a number of experimental uh, studies clearly showing that there is a majority in a majority of member states, even in more wealthy countries to support the development uh, of more tools in favor of more social policy at a European level. But at the same time, the EU is constantly struggling to assert its legitimacy to act in this very domain. So there is a very deeply rooted reluctance within political elites uh, from pretty much all political families, also among, uh, let's say, uh, high civil servants and state apparatus to delegate more competences to the European Union. And I think that this is very much connected to what the EU is doing. So if people have the feeling that the action of the EU has a rather negative impact on social policy, then, of course, they will tend to favor less and less action. So the difficulty for the proponents of more social Europe is that resistance comes from two different fronts. On the one hand, it comes from those decision makers who are not favorable to more social regulation vis-a-vis the market, who are not favorable to more social policy in general, regardless of whether this takes place at the national or the European level. But there's also resistance from um, those political actors trade unions, but also social democrats, left-wing actors in those countries where the welfare states is already very robust, fairly relatively effective, and who are more afraid that more action of the EU, more constraints coming from Europe, more pooling of resources at the European level would eventually have a negative impact on their own social system. And the delicate uh, fact is that in some respect, this has sometimes been true in periods of time where, for instance, the European Court of Justice has had a very pro-liberalization stance where similarly the European Commission has pushed for Uh, very uh, neoliberal policy solutions, and so forth and so on. So there is always this political struggle taking place among EU institutions across uh, institutions and party families to try and assert the legitimacy of the EU to act in this field. I was thinking about the recent development from the last uh, decade and the last five years. If you are to assess the development over time of the social uh, acquis, so in this in these recent uh, times, where do we stand? Do you have a positive uh, somehow uh, judgment about the direction that the European Union is undertaking? And perhaps uh, your comment on one of the last steps that we have seen uh, 
at least on the political framing of the social policies in Europe, there is the European pillar of social rights and the action plan that it follows. So somehow, what is your take on the trend? So you described a little bit the struggles. Is the path that the union is taking still a little bit positive, I would say? Are we going in the right direction or are we moving too slowly or are we actually not doing enough? The last five years uh, have been very, very interesting. I think two different dynamics took place. We see from 2015 onwards a slow return to the relaunch of the social policy agenda of the European Union. And the background to this has been clearly the social and political impact of austerity in many, many uh, European countries, not only in Southern Europe, of course, primarily in Southern Europe, but also uh, across the continent. So this loss, enormous loss, I would argue, of uh, legitimacy and a growing hostility towards an EU who has badly affected the social situation, although uh, in, in direct or less uh, direct ways. And so from two, 2015 onwards, we see that this dynamic is starting to change, that the EU institutions are willing to insufflate a, a new course with new initiatives. And of course, the adoption in 2017 of the European Pillar of Social Rights was totally, in fact, a, a key uh, step in this direction. So that's, of course, the, let's say, more slow motion movement, uh, which is responding to what some colleagues of mine uh, called the slow burning crisis, I would say, of the economic and social governance of the EU. And then, of course, in 2020, we see this great acceleration. So it's no longer a slow trend, but we have this massive change in the amount of resources and in the type of tools we have, uh, the connection of environmental issues and social issues with the, uh, with the just transition and so on. So undeniably, from the point of view, which is mine, which consists in saying the EU has to be more effective and to do more to tackle social issues, I think uh, the, the uh, assessment here is, is rather positive in the sense that we see that something is going on, we see new instruments uh, emerging. Regarding the European Pillar of Social Rights, what is very special here, and it's uh, actually fairly similar to the European semester, is that it's a hybrid instrument from a legal point of view. It both relies on hard law and regulation and directives, in other words, and on soft coordination, voluntary coordination of, of national government's policymaking. And the interesting thing here is that the action of the EU in, in, in relying on regulation had waned. It had perhaps not come to a complete standstill, but under Barroso and afterwards, there were very, very few new proposals from the Commission and with the support of the councils for new regulations and new directives. And we see that this is changing. With the European Pillar of Social Rights, we've seen a new directive on work-life balance, uh, on uh, working uh, contracts, and more recently on minimum wages. So important initiatives which show that the EU is trying to tackle also new problems 
problems related to change in the forms of work, atypical work, uh, and, and so forth and so on. Now, the big unknown remains on the front of soft coordination because many of the challenges and of the objectives that are enshrined in the European Pillar of Social Rights can only be achieved through national measures. And so here we're still a bit unsure of how this is going to work exactly to deliver effective outcomes. I actually happen to share uh, very much uh, your assessment in the sense that I also see an acceleration after 2020 of the commission activity in the sphere of, of social uh, policies, uh, empowered, I'm quite sure, from the European Pillar of Social Rights that was enacted uh, uh, during the Juncker Commission. Uh, but perhaps is with this commission, also thanks to the several progressive commissioners that are following key dossier, that we have seen uh, some renewed uh, ambition. And I, I wanted to ask you this weird question. I will mention some of the policies that the commission have put forward. I would like to understand from you which one you see as more uh, groundbreaking somehow, or more able to actually deliver a true change uh, for the European people, more structural, if you want, or, or more able to create value. The European Labour Authority, the Social Scoreboard, the Child Guarantee, Gender Equality Strategy, the Skills Agenda, the Minimum and Adequate Wages, the Social Climate Fund, and SURE. Is there anything there that you consider? Because when you were thinking about acceleration, I was, you know, uh, wrapping up my mind about, mm -hmm. around the several things that the European Union has in mm -hmm. just a few years. Do you see here something that is extremely promising and has the potential of uh, being a, a game changer? Can I pick three? I would briefly outline three of them, which I find particularly interesting for different reasons. Of course. First, the labor authority. Of course, the effectiveness will completely depend on how it works and we'll only be able to see this in the coming years. It's in a way too early to, to assess. But the important thing here is that the focus is on implementation. The awareness that you can adopt all the directives in the world at EU level. We see that if controls on the ground do not happen, if you do not have a, an effective cooperation of national administrations, then the rules remain dead letter and the added value of Europe is zero. So the idea here is that, you know, it's not up to the EU to conduct each and every control of workers, but there is an interest and there has to be an action of the EU to make sure that implementation of EU law is effective in the realm of uh, labor and work relations. So that's one. Then I would choose the social climate fund because it's trying to tackle, I would say, relatively new dimension. And again, the Social Climate Fund is here to address the problem that you cannot expect that everything will work well with the just transition by just transferring money to those regions which have to decarbonize their economy. You need to dig and to act much, much deeper into societies. You need to uh, pay attention to climate inequality and the impact of climate change on households, on how energy goes to people. So 
I think this is still a first step, in a way, a timid attempt to address those issues. And perhaps the amount of resources available is completely insufficient. But in this way, I think it's innovative. And finally, the minimum wage directive, which perhaps will not change everything and perhaps even will change very little because it's just a framework. But uh, it's breaking a taboo. It's breaking a taboo. And we've seen this with the contestation and that has come from the fact that from a certain legal point of view, the EU does not even have the competence to deal with uh, wages. But I think here again is the new awareness that in-work poverty is not acceptable and that the EU can try to give direction to how uh, a decent level of minimum wages can be uh, can be set at the national level. I'm very surprised by these three choices of yours, which I like on this, indeed, and thanks for uh, um, somehow putting your thoughts on the European Labour Authority, Social Climate Fund, and uh, the minimum adequate wages. Uh, You have wrote a lot on the European semester, country-specific recommendations. That's why I I, I suspect that you wanted to speak about the, the, the social scoreboard and the changes in the European semester. And as well, you have written also for FEPS on the Schure policy brief. It's already quite some time, but it was a first assessment of Schure, a quick, a quick fix to be welcomed in search mm-hmm. for a long-term solution. That brings me to ask you something that pertains to the socially relevant changes in the European governance, thanks to this uh, COVID uh, response, I would say. What, what I see is that this uh, recovery process has two types uh, of impacts on the social domain. One is somehow via the national uh, recovery and resilience plan. So what member states are planning, the measures, the spending, the reforms to transform their own social policies thanks to these uh, European inputs. So what's new in the national recovery plans? So uh, what, what is the adaptation if if, the, if member states are taking it up somehow to uh, jump to a welfare that is fit for the post-COVID society, for a more modern, a more digital society. But on the other side is also what is this recovery somehow uh, telling to the European policymakers? What are we learning here more from a Brussels viewpoint on the socioeconomic coordination somehow? And what are the, the, the functioning of the instruments that we have here? Shure is temporary, the next generation EU is temporary. There is a new uh, monitoring with the European semester. What is your take, therefore, on the somehow on the impact on uh, social policies and the coordination of social economic policies, thanks to the big push on the recovery? Yes, it's very interesting. I think that the the pandemic has brought about an important change, um, also in terms of ideas over policymaking, and especially the idea that, you know, 15 years ago, the specialists of Social Europe were agreeing to say social policy at European level is determined, is shaped by the markets and by the judges. The Court of Justice is the main driver of social policy, and the EU is uh, essentially doing market regulation and regulating social policy so as to serve the single market. And I think the pandemic shows that the mindset is drastically different now, and in many ways, politics is back. A politics is back in a sense that, A, we see that social policy 
uh, implies dramatic collective decisions for societies, and those are political choices. These are uh, a matter of values. And secondly, you can't only rely on regulation. Regulation has its limits. You need resources to do social policy, to tackle social issue and foster social cohesion. And we've seen this, of course, with the impact of austerity on public services, uh, healthcare in the first place, but also education and many other public services which have been marketized way too much. So that's the first way in which I think ideas over governance and policymaking have changed uh, in important ways. And then in relationship with the instruments of the EU and um, the European semester and the national recovery plans, which are now integrated into the European semester, I think that there is perhaps, we will see in the future, a better balance between sticks and carrots, or rather an attempt to find the right balance between uh, sticks and carrots. In other way, the type of constraint that the EU is using and here very clearly we see the rise of conditionality, which is again not a, a unified concept but has many declinations. Of course, macroeconomic conditionality or rule of law conditionality remain extremely contentious politically. But then we also see a lot of earmarking of resources. So conditionality in the terms of telling the member states how they should use the EU money. We see the rise of green conditionality, but also perhaps still two embryonic forms of social policy conditionality. So here we see the, the degree of constraint is higher. That's the sticks. But also, of course, the carrots is the money. And uh, with next generation EU and the enhanced budget and other policy tools such as SHORE, we see uh, more carrots, more possibilities, more support coming from the EU to the member states. And I think that's very positive as well, because Prior to 2020, the European semester was necessarily, it was very often asking the national governments to do always better, to enhance, to modernize their welfare states, but without any financial support, only with the very limited budgetary room for maneuver that they had. And some member states had them and some others, of course, didn't. So, yes, I think that we're experiencing uh, very interesting times, let's say. Indeed. To conclude this episode of the FEPS Talks, I wanted to ask you some rather unconventional questions, <laughs> but I'm sure you're, you're very used to them because it goes at the core of your academic activities. Uh, one would be if you can single out one recommendation to European policymakers. Imagine you have a commissioner listen, listening to you now. If there is uh, one measure, one recommendation, either to, you know, to redesign what's there, what's there, or to look at uh, some other, some policies that would be desperately needed, one policy recommendation. And the other curiosity they have, when you teach in front of your students at the ULB or at the College of Europe, what is really the thing that you want them to get once you are teaching about social policies at the European level? One thing that you really want that remains stick in their brains. Well. Recommendation, <laughs> recommendation and key message for students. Very difficult question. Well, to the first one, um, I would answer, I would recommend national decision makers to really use EU money to make innovative social investment. 
and not to, let's say, just continue what they would do otherwise, what they, you know, the business as usual. Really use the recovery plan to tackle those social issues that are very pressing. And I would count among them uh, investment in education uh, as well, which is really, really lacking in many, uh, in many countries. To the second question, what I think I'm trying to very uh, consistently emphasize in my teaching um, is that nothing is set in stone and everything is political. And the two go together because we see that the history of social Europe is far from being linear, as you have pointed out earlier. We see ups and downs, some moments of um, stagnation, some moments of progress, some moments of uh, really uh, dramatic concerning events from a social point of view. Uh, but still, uh, I tend to also in my research disagree uh, with those scholars who argue that because of its legal features, because of its institutional features, uh, the EU cannot make a positive contribution to policymaking. I wouldn't subscribe to that thesis for the simple reason that what the EU is doing is the result of political struggles and the result of a political, uh, let's say, power relations in a given moment. And uh, for that reason, everything needs to be discussed over and over and nothing is set in stone. You made me recall uh, the famous Schumann quote that Europe will not uh, be made uh, all uh, at once uh, or according to a single plan, but it will be built through concrete achievements which first create a de facto solidarity. So let's create de facto solidarity, then we will have unity and a strong social Europe. If you wish to go farther on these topics, uh, thanks to Amandine's knowledge uh, and ability to drive on the different aspects and cleavages of the social uh, Europe area, uh, have a read at the European Social Question, Tackling Key Controversies by Amandine Crespi. Thank you, Amandine, and see you soon. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.